This is the uh, 1,991st uh, celebration of the resurrection, <laughs> and approximately, you know, I, I don't actually know the year that he was crucified. There's, you know, it's within a range, but we're close. Isn't that amazing? And, uh, and yet, when he, when he rose from the dead, it was unexpected, even though he had talked about it, even though he had, had made it clear at times, it was the hidden wisdom of God, you know, that just was not understood. And I, I want to start with 1 Corinthians 2.8, none, none. That's a big word, isn't it? None. That kind of, that's like the opposite of all. None of the rulers of this age understood this, the resurrection. For if they had, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. But as it is written, what no eye has seen, nor ear heard, nor the heart of man imagined, what God has prepared for those who love him. Thank you, Jesus. And that's the reality, and I think that that is still the case that we misinterpret things that happen in history. We misinterpret current events. The disciples were filled with grief, even though he had talked about it ahead of time. They didn't understand it. The, the rulers of this age were jumping up and down with joy. I think, you know, in, in the... Um, diabolical strategy of the fallen angels, they were, they were so filled with hatred and murder and, and you know, they, they had plotted this, like how can we end this, how can we end this? And then it came, I just wonder, I, I mean, maybe we'll find out in glory, but I always wonder, did they have any second thoughts? You know, as he's carrying his cross up to the Mount, Mount Moriah, are they like thinking like, wait, wait, wait. Remember when, when Isaac carried the wood up to the, like, whoa, you know, I don't know if they had any second thoughts or not. Were they so intoxicated with bloodlust, you know, and just had no understanding at all. But I'm sure there was a point, and it's hard to say when it was, you know, was it when he said it's finished? And they're like, like what is finished? <laughs> Was it when he descended into hell, they thought, now we've got him, but in reality, he had them. Oh, Jesus. So, God, we just pray that you would open our eyes, that we would see reversals. Plot reversals are what you have done forever and what you do best. Amen. Oh, and so, we, you know, we're, we're told that creation waits with eager longing for things to be fulfilled, and yet creation is groaning, and we're excited, yet we're groaning within, and the Holy Spirit is filling us with encouragement, yet the Spirit groans to, with prayers for us, intercessions for us, too deep for words. So we're in this kind of tension between the promise and the, the reality because we're in a battle. It's a, the only conclusion. But here's what we have to know, you know, so we're surrounded with, not only surrounded with, but sometimes inhabited with disappointment, discouragement, worry, hopelessness. We, it, you know, something seems late and we think it's too late. 
that there's never an answer. God, just fill us with hope. There's a cure for the misery. We have to understand like a ruling, a, a ruling principle over all of time and all of the redemptive acts of God and all of the good and terrible things that happen in this world. Romans 8, 28, that is set in the context of suffering. It says, for we know that all things work together for the good. For we know that those, for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose. And so here it is. If we love God, his purpose calls us. If we love God and his purpose calls us, we are, we are in the stream of his purpose and his plan. And no matter how many plot reversals and things we can't understand, things that crush us, things that elate us, we have this assurance that, that God is causing all things to work together for the good. He has it figured out ahead of time. You know, so, but, you know, so here it is. You know, Israel had these promises. They were waiting forever. The human race had been waiting since God spoke to the serpent and said the woman would bring forth a seed who would crush your head. You'll bruise his heel, but he'll crush your head. There'll be enmity between the seed of the serpent and the seed of the woman. All this went on, and and the hope was built up through prophetic promises in the, in the covenant people of God, Israel. And yet when he came, not too many recognized him. John, his cousin, John the baptizer, he recognized him. John 1, 29, it says he, he saw Jesus coming toward him and said, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. I mean, this is a phenomenal statement. He is the Lamb of God. He is the, the one sacrifice that that takes all the sacrifices of Israel, all the sacrifices that had ever been made, and he's the reality of those sacrifices. And his function is that in his sacrifice, he carries away the indictment of sin for the whole world. Oh, my goodness. He takes away the sin of the world. Now, not everyone receives that, but that's the offer that's made. But the reality is even John... You know, because of the way the, the plot line, the storyline twists and turns, even John got stumbled at it. John was, was in jail for offending uh, a petty ruler because he had, was, like many petty rulers, very immoral, had taken his brother's wife, all this kind of stuff, and John spoke out against it, and he was in jail, and Jesus was doing his father's will, which did not include a pastoral visit to John. So John got, I think he got his feelings hurt. It's normal and natural. If you heard Krista Smith last week talking about Mary and Martha, like their feelings are hurt because Jesus didn't show up when they thought he should. And so John is in the same situation and he sends his disciples to Jesus, Matthew 11, three, are you the one who is to come? Or should we look for another? In other words, behind this question, John is saying, like, I don't even know if he is the Messiah. 
I don't even know if he is the Lamb of God. Like, what kind of, didn't you read your job description? You're supposed to come visit me in jail. And Jesus said, oh, listen, go back and tell him that the, the blind see, the deaf hear, the lame are walking and leaping for joy, and the poor are rejoicing in the good news they're hearing. And then when they leave, and he says, blessed are those who are not offended in me. So the difficulty is that we don't get offended at God's timing or his purpose, but we trust him. This is the happy, blessed state. This is like, so I just bless you. Bless me, help me, Lord, not to get offended when you don't do what I'm expecting, even though I'm believing your promises and have prophesied them, which is what the case with John, huh? And then he goes, like after they left, he said, by the way, to all you here, there's no one greater among the prophets than John. Yet the least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. Okay, so uh, he just, he's just not what we expect, you know. I mean, what, what were they expecting? They were expecting something great, and yet when he came, he, he, he was the fulfillment of all they were expecting and more, but not in the way they expected. Even his hometown gave him a bad reputation. When Philip Philip goes to Nathaniel and says, hey, brother, we found him. We found the one that Moses and the prophets all prophesied about, Jesus of Nazareth. And when he says Nazareth, that stumbles Nathaniel. And he's like, wait, nothing good can come. You know, that's like the worst town in Israel. Like, do you know how many shootings there were in Nazareth last, you know, like, why would God, where is it in, you know, Anyway, so it goes on and on, and yet he is all these things. He's the bread of life. He's the light of the world. He's the door into eternal life. He's the good shepherd that takes care of our souls. He is, he gives eternal life, and none can take it away. Is that amazing? Is that amazing? You know, he's all these things and so much more. And yet, he came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. And so this is, you know, there's a few chapters in in the Gospels that really highlight these plot turns. And I recommend, you know, as you read read the Bible, you know, the chapters and the verses were added later to help us locate things. But there are some amazing chapters, like so many things happen, and like you could just keep a tally, you know, is it looking good or looking bad, you know? And some chapters, it's just like, whoa, it's like better than a ride at Hershey Park. Okay, so <laughs> that's a trivial simile. But um, so let's take Luke 9. Okay, Luke 9. Now, a lot of stuff happens in Luke 9, but in the beginning of Luke 9, he feeds the 5,000. This is where where. Luke, in his gospel, locates the feeding of the 5,000. And, uh, and so, you know, the, the disciples are absolutely, their minds are boggled. But then it tells us after the feeding of the 5,000, and there's good reason for this, because other gospels tell us that people wanted to make him king and that kind of thing. In Luke 9, 18, Jesus withdrew and he's praying alone. And the disciples came and were with him and he asked them, who do the crowds say that I am? 
You know, what, what's the social media telling you? Did I get likes? Did I get unlikes? Am I, am I being canceled? Am I an influencer? He says, who do the crowd say I am? And, and you know what? It has absolutely nothing to do with the storyline of God. And, and so they say, well, some say you might be Elijah, you might be Moses, you might be one of the prophets raised from the dead. Verse 20, but who do you say that I am? And Peter answered, the Christ of God. Good job, Peter. Now, but just in the very next verse, verse 21, he strictly charged and commanded them. Now, that's a lot of restrictions. He strictly charged and commanded them. In other words, tell this to no one. Like, hey, this is super top secret, super confidential. Now, whether that worked or not, you know, have you ever like, hey, don't let anybody know, and everybody said, hey, you know, I said, I'm only telling you, but, so I don't know how this worked, actually, whether they carried that out, but he strictly charged and commanded them to tell no one, saying, the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed that's like, you know, I think they're traumatized by killed. I don't know if they heard the last part. And on the third day, be raised. And of course, like, they have no idea what that is. Like, what did he just say? You know, so, and, and so it goes on. So there, it, you know, it's awesome. He could have been the king. He's telling him, no, you know, can't tell anybody. I'm gonna be rejected. I'm gonna suffer rejected. I'm gonna be killed. And on the third day, I'm gonna be raised. And they're like, what? You know, well, shortly after that, they go up on the mountain. This is all in Luke 9. They go up on the Mount of Transfiguration. And uh, in fact, it's eight days after when it, whenever he fed the 5,000. Verse 28, now about eight days after these sayings, he went up on the mountain to pray. Verse 29, as he is praying, something happened. Heaven opened up. He was in a thin place. His, his, the appearance of his face changed, and his clothing became dazzling white. It was like flashes of lightning. And, uh, and Behold, two men were talking with him, Moses and Elijah. Now, why Moses and Elijah? Well, there's a lot of reasons. Moses, you know, both Moses was, died up on Mount Pisgah and God buried him. So, and then Elijah went up in a chariot. So there you have that in common, that, that they had unusual deaths. But here's, in one way, Moses was the beginning of the, the covenant culture of Israel. So Moses was the beginning of Israel as they knew it, and Elijah, according to Malachi, will be the end, that he will come in the day, great and terrible day of the Lord. Right before that, he'll turn the... And so there, there's... That, amazing. Anyway, so Moses and Elijah appeared in glory, and I thought, man, I've never heard anybody preach about what it means that they were in glory. And and they spoke of his departure, which was about to be accomplished in Jerusalem. So they're informing Jesus. Um, Peter and the boys are asleep, so they kind of miss the conversation there. Now, shortly after that, they come down off the mountain. When they woke up and saw it, they had a good suggestion, but it wasn't in the plot storyline. And uh, then they came down off the mountain. The other disciples are trying hard to cast out a demon and can't do it. So Jesus rebuked the unclean 
this is verse 42, unclean spirit and healed the boy and gave him back to his father. And verse 43, all were astonished at the majesty of God. They were out of their minds while they were marveling, which is another way of saying they were out of their minds, like they couldn't compute what they just happened at everything he was doing. It was the majesty of God was displayed in freeing people from the, this, this common oppression that's common to all people. Now, not everyone may have a, a demon in them. I, I trust most of the people in this room do not. But I mean, this boy was a, like a, a picture of the state of the human race. You know, he was dying, he was possessed, he couldn't do what he wanted to do, he did things he didn't want to do, and his father was totally distressed, and Jesus, with a word, changes it all and reveals the majesty of God. Now they're all out of their mind, and, and, his, and this is going on, and Jesus turns to his disciples and said, now here's a major plot direction change. <laughs> Like Jesus is singing, yeah, like Hosanna and then crucify him. You know, like I, I've got this. They were told me what it's gonna be like at my departure. And in verse 44, let these words sink into your ears. The son of man is about to be delivered. They think he's about to be elected president, but he's about to be delivered into the hands of men. They didn't understand this. It, it, why? Because it was concealed from them and they were afraid to ask. So in other words, he's talking about things that no eye has seen, no ear has heard, no mind, their minds cannot conceive of what he's saying to them. It's the hidden wisdom of God. And so it may, what, like here's how it is. Sometimes when it seems like you're winning, watch out, you might be losing. Sometimes when you're losing, take hope, you might be on your way to the greatest victory that you've ever seen. This is the resurrection message. All right. Now, so, um, so, so here's another, okay, another great uh, plot twist we find in John chapter 11. And if you were here last week, you heard Krista uh, Smith give this great message on, on Lazarus and his death and the interaction between Jesus and the timing of God and, and Martha and Mary. And, and, uh, and so, but here's the deal. So Lazarus dies and then is raised. And the delay was not denial. The delay was a divine setup to reveal the glory of God. And it stirred the people. And this actually became, this was a very important thing that happened because without the raising of Lazarus, there would have been no crowds on Palm Sunday. Because they were gathered around because they heard that Lazarus had been raised from the dead. And this set in motion not only the crowd that wanted to see this great sign that had occurred, but it had also set in motion the envy and jealousy of the chief priests and Pharisees, which, by the way, the chief priests and Pharisees being mentioned in the same verse means the, the sold-out, compromised, Sadducee, political, get-rich, religion for money, Sadducees, and the Pharisees, who were the Bible thumpers, the, you know, the real strict uh, fundamentalists of their day. Like, it, they were brought together. Why? Because there's nothing like a common enemy to unite 
people. Why were they united? Because it, whatever this guy was doing and the crowds were running after him was gonna wreck their whole life. It was gonna mess up their income. It was gonna mess up their 401ks. It was like, they was gonna mess up their plans like the chief priest, you know, he, he was gonna put his son in as the next chief priest and his son in as the next chief priest and they got it going and it's good with Rome and there's lots of money in it and then the Pharisees are just true believers in the law without revelation or Holy Spirit life in them. They weren't bad, they just didn't know what they didn't know. And we could say, anyway. So, so, you know, he stirs up the people, he comes into town, like he hears the people that the Pharisees are, are against him, you know, so he kind of hides out. He and his disciples go out into the desert, but when it's getting close to the Passover, they come back to the house of Mary, Martha, and Lazarus, the sign and wonder, and, uh, and so the people are gathering around and they arrive on, and so when he comes in on Palm Sunday, it's Palm Sunday. Because they've already decided in their minds he must be the Messiah. And so they're cutting palm branches and throwing claws on the road and shouting out, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. They're declaring him the Messiah and the, and the the rulers are going, hey, 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 you know, stop, the, stop this. He says, if I, if I tried to shut it down, the stones would cry out. And the children were singing and dancing and misbehaving in the temple. And it was like, like they're going, ah! So they all got together. And they said, look, the whole, everybody's following him. If we don't get rid of this guy, you know, our whole game is up. It would be better for one man to die than for the whole nation to be destroyed. Now, he said that by the spirit of the Lord, it was the high priest, but I don't think he meant it that he's gonna die for the whole nation that like as the sacrificial lamb. He's thinking like, look, we get rid of this guy or Rome's gonna get rid of all of us. You know, so they were, you know, it's an amazing thing when people get in power, they make decisions for the wrong reasons. It's one of the temptations of being in power is you like your position and so you start making decisions to protect your position instead of hearing what the Lord is saying. Thank you, God. Just set us free to hear what the Lord is saying because, because Jesus could hear what the Lord was saying, even though it may look like temporarily he took the worst path possible, he is the Lord of the universe, come on, you know, it's like, and God, wherefore God has highly exalted him and given him the name above every name. Okay, so, but uh, John eleven fifty three. here's the real plot change. From that day on, they plotted to take his life. So who is they, you know, this is a good question. In some sense, it was all of us, which could make you feel really bad about yourself, but on the other hand, God did it. So this is crazy, Acts 4.27. Um, and, and this is the preaching shortly after the day of Pentecost, the apostolic preaching. It's, and, and Peter is speaking, he says, in Jerusalem there were gathered together against Jesus, both, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, and the Gentiles and Israel. Like that, that includes everybody. To do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. See, this is, 
This is the declaration of truth. This is the prayer that is coming through revelation by the Holy Spirit that he's saying, God, you know, it looked like they were in charge, but they weren't in charge. They did whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. Is it possible that even today God has a plan and that his hand is is orchestrating things so what appears like you know the the rulers of this earth are taking counsel together against the Lord and against his anointing how can we stamp them out how can we get rid of them that it's all a setup to what God wants to do because it's been predestined and God is not worried and hoping that we would pray better prayers so he could save the world he's got the plan <laughs> whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place so this is a, a strange thing, but if we, you understand this, you'll have peace in your heart that even terrible things can have a good outcome. Romans 8.28 is probably the central promise in the entire Bible that sums up the message of the Old and New Testament, and it's, you know, it just tells us that for those who love God, all things work together for good, according to the purpose of him who is calling us. Come on, just a thought. Okay, so now we, so this does not end well for Jesus. You know, everybody wants to meet him. This is uh, John chapter 12. His answer is, you guys, look, you know, unless a seed falls and die, falls into the ground and dies, it remains alone, but if it falls into the ground, it bears much fruit. And uh, if I be lifted up, I'll draw them into me. And he's saying these things, and they're like, what? You know, but see, unless he fell into the ground and died, he could not be the firstborn from the dead. And he could not be the firstborn of many brethren. So when he died, we died. When he was raised, we were raised. This is what... Baptism connects us with this, that we, we are buried with him in baptism and we're raised from the dead in his resurrection and we ascend into heaven and we're seated with him in heavenly places. It's like, whoa! This is why I always think, I don't like baptisms where you just go, I, I like baptisms where they, you're kind of like, I actually, I mean, as a baby Christian, but I, t I said to the guy, because I watched, he was baptizing the other people, I said, hey, hold me down a little longer. <laughs> you know, I don't think God needed more time. I just needed more time to process what was being, what I was being delivered from. Come on. So, <laughs> ah! okay, and so Jesus, you know, Jesus is brought before Pilate, and Pilate's actually trying to, 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 find a way to convince the crowd to set him free, but Pilate won't set him free on his own because he's worried about his own career, maybe his own head, because he was already in trouble with Caesar, and so he brings him out after he's totally tortured and tormented, which, by the way, was for our healing and for our deliverance. He was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities by... by by his stripes were healed. The chastisement of our peace was upon him. So here he is. He's partway through the sacrifice. And 
Pilate brings him out and he's like, don't you people have any pity? Behold the man. Behold the man. It's a very interesting phrase there. It's been immortalized. It's amazing. Quite a few words of Pilate have been immortalized. Eke homo. Behold the human being. That's what he's saying. There's a Greek word for male and there's a Greek word for man as humanity and the word there is used humanity. Look, here's the true human. Here's the image of God. This is what our sin, our rebellion does to the image of God. And so all of this is going on. In his humility, he's setting us free. And, uh, and of course, they just cry out, crucify him, crucify him. And so Pilate washes his hands and says, okay, you got it. Just do what you want. So Jesus is crucified, and uh, this is all in John 19. John 19, verse 28, Jesus has been on the cross now for three hours, and it says, after this, Jesus, knowing that all was now finished, said to fulfill scripture, I thirst. But it's interesting, when he says, I thirst, he already knows that all, that all was now finished. It was finished. He did it. He had, he had completed the sacrifice that took away the sin of the world. And people, you know, people will contend over things that none of us were there, so we can't, we can't really interview, and we'll all get our theology straightened out, the fine points in heaven, you know, like, okay, I have a class here, okay. But, but when he says, he knows that it was all was now finished, that's a pretty big statement. It's like, God, it's, it's done. And so then in verse, so they, they ran to get him something to moisten his lips. Verse 30, when Jesus had received the sour wine, the vinegar, he said, it is finished. Second time he said it, it's finished. He bowed his head and gave up his spirit, or the ghost, if you're reading King James. And, and so, same word. It is finished. It's done. It's, it's completed. It's, uh, it's, the, it's the past perfect tense, like it's done. It's very interesting. If you read this in the Aramaic New Testament, his last words are ha-mashalem which means, behold, it is now complete. Or it could be, behold, it is now brought back to peace. I mean, I'm, I'm playing with that. But you understand, like he was saying, it, this is it. This is it. I've made peace. I've reconciled all things in the cross. And in making peace, he destroyed already the grounds of the accuser of the brethren. Because we're at peace. He's made peace. He's made peace between Jew and Gentile. They didn't know that yet. He's made peace between God and sinners. They don't know that yet. But he's saying, I've given, I have peace to give you. It's not the world, the, pe the peace that the world has to give. It's a peace that passes understanding. And so he's purchased us on the cross. As a human, Jesus did what God could not do, which was to die. But in his dying, dying as an innocent man, he defeated death by dying. 
because he removed the ground of universal guilt and that all men must die. And he didn't do it by moving mountains or hurling lightning bolts or killing his enemies. He did it by dying in love. Isn't it amazing that on the cross, his seven last words illustrate that he's dying in love. He's dying with not only in the intensity of his own passion, his suffering, his agony, but he's still thinking about his mom. He's still, he's, he's, kind and forgiving to the the thief on the cross who recognizes him. So he did that as a human, but as God, he did what only God could do. He released a new creation. And he released it within the old, and in his rising, he becomes the firstborn of the dead, and this new creation has been released in the earth. It's like, Jesus said the kingdom of heaven is like yeast that's put into the dough, and it, the, the yeast seems unimportant. You can't really see it. You can't taste it, but it, over time, it just changes everything. Uh, and so there's an invisible restructuring going on, And we have to know everything that's going on is governed by Romans 8.28. I'm just saying that, that suffering is not final. Death has no victory. Do you understand what, what he's done? And it gives us courage to live and to live in the face of opposition. It gives us courage to live in the face of persecution. It gives us courage to love our enemies to pray for those who curse, to bless those who curse us and pray for those who abuse us. God, thank you for resurrection life. It gives us authority. It gives us a new creation reality that we can live like Jesus lived in the world. This is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. And I've loved you with the same love my father loved me with for all eternity. Just a thought. And so, what, I mean, you know, the cross was unexpected to all those who were rooting for Jesus, you know, all those who thought he was the Messiah. The cross was, for them, it seemed like the final defeat. Well, that's all over. But from in the spiritual realm, what he did Crucifixion was what man did to God. The cross is what God did for us. Because in in his cross, the penalty was transformed into reward, you know, and reunion. And that death, which was the last enemy, becomes a doorway into the new creation. And we still contend for people to live and not die before their time. But isn't that amazing? That if you die, you live. If you die, you leave, we leave this body and we step into a, a new body and we behold him in his glory. I just think that's a better deal. I mean, Paul actually said, look, I, you know, I'm kind of stuck. I, I would like to die and be with Jesus, but I know you guys need me, so I'm willing to stay here in all my aches and pains and my sufferings. And he says, for me to live is Christ. To die is gain. And so he says, okay, I'm just gonna live. I'll live longer until it's my time, you know? But I mean, it's like, this is an absolute transformation. And in this, Hebrews 2 tells us that through death, he destroyed the one who had the power of death. He destroyed. It doesn't mean that death's not there. It doesn't mean that the devil is, is abolished from our lives because he's around. And he's seeking whom he can destroy and we have to be alert and and contend and be involved in spiritual warfare. But ultimately, his 
His real authority was that when you died, you were separated from God. Even if you were in Abraham's bosom, you were still separated from God. And Jesus destroyed that power, and in his life, we can be fearless. Help us, Lord. It's, it's scary to be fearless. That sounds like, like a, an oxymoron, and it is. Okay, so... This is the outworking of none of the rulers of this age understood this, for if they had, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. But as it is written, what no eye has seen, what no ear has heard, what the heart, nor the heart of man imagined, what God has prepared for him. I'm just telling you, there are things that God has prepared for you that you've never imagined. Sometimes we're trying to convince God of our plan for our life. Write it down, you know, declare it every day. God, I, you know, and there's, there's room for that. But the main thing is, God, what have you planned? What is it? I'm here for you, you know. And sometimes God will respond like, well, what do you want to do? Because he's already put the desire in our heart. But that's way different than trying to convince God through our bold proclamation that he should do what we want and not what he wants. <laughs> we want to deny ourselves, take up our cross and follow him because it leads to resurrection life. It leads to absolute freedom. Christ died for our sins. He was raised on the third day. This is Paul's gospel in, in 1 Corinthians 15, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. This is past, present, and future. Verse 21, for by a man came death, and by a man has come also the resurrection from the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. The perishable puts on imperishable. The mortal puts on immortality. Then shall come to pass the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. It's from Isaiah 25. And then he thinks of another one. Oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? From Hosea 13. He's just like, Paul is like, oh, this is so good. He's destroyed death. He did it on the sixth day. He took the keys of hell on the seventh day, and he released new creation on eighth day, Sunday, the first day of the week. It's the new beginning. And so what, what he does is he, he delivers us from immovable barriers. You know, um, when they were going to the tomb, they were worried about how are we gonna move the stone? These are two women, it's a great big stone. And the stone was already rolled away. The stone wasn't rolled away to let Jesus out. He didn't need, he could get out just by any way he wanted. The, the stone was actually rolled away so the disciples could see that the tomb was empty. Uh, and he delivers us from worrying about or being grieved by things which no longer exist. And the angel said, why do you seek the dead, uh, the living among the dead? He's not here, he's risen. Remember what he said. God, we, you just set us free from things we think we can't handle. Immovable barriers that you're, you're gonna send angels to move the barriers. Set us free from grieving over things which no longer exist. And God says, I brought you into a new day. It's a new day, there's new possibilities. Nothing's impossible with me. He wants to set us free from panic. He wants to set us free from inconsolable grief. Mary, who loved him dearly, was grieving at the tomb. It's very natural. 
she bumps into him and doesn't recognize him because he looks like he's, he's the gardener, you know, just there raking up some leaves or whatever. And, and he says, whom do you seek? Jesus, tell me where they've taken him. And of course, when he spoke her name, everything changed. And uh, Jesus, deliver us. And then, of course, the, the great story is this hopeless disappointment. The, the disciples on the road to Emmaus, it's been three days. He's risen from the dead. They don't know it. And they're, they're saying, oh, we wish, we thought. Are you the only one who doesn't know? And he began to open their eyes. He began to speak to them from the scriptures. And later, when he disappeared after the breaking of bread, they said, didn't our hearts burn? And I just pray, God, would you release revelation that causes our hearts to burn and gives us hope. Do you understand? Nothing had changed. Rome was still Rome. The soldiers were still the soldiers. The high priests and Pharisees were still corrupt. And yet, for them, their reality completely changed. And then, of course, there, there's that feeling that a lot of us have is, is we don't know what's gonna happen next. That's why the disciples were locked. They, they were locked in their house because they were afraid of what the Jews would, you know, hey, they're gonna come after us next. And Jesus just shows up and they're out of their minds with joy. They can't even think. You know, he's like, hey, hey, you guys got anything to eat? You know, <laughs> and they give him some fish and he eats it with them. You know, it's just like, and they're like, ah, because it hadn't sunk in. It hadn't sunk in. And I think it actually didn't sink in. I mean, it didn't sink in fully until the day of Pentecost. You know, and, and then it was released because that was the next, that was you know, the coronation oil <laughs> as he was crowned in heaven, poured out on, on the upper room and, and the church was born. I want you to stand up. Just, isn't this amazing? So God, I, I wanna say this. I think a lot of us live in the space between the resurrection and Pentecost. That we know he's risen we're pretty sure we'll go to heaven when we die, you know, we're trying our best, which actually has nothing to do with trying our best, except we always work to please him, but it has to do with what he did for us, not what we do for him. But we live in this place where we, where we get discouraged by things, we're afraid of what's gonna happen next, we think, we think this, this is so big, nobody can fix this, and it seems like God is just on vacation or something, like, God, do you know? And he said, yeah, come on, wait till you see what I do next. So while Rome is being Rome, and you know, the soldiers are marching, and they're still crucifying criminals, and all of this stuff's going on, the, the disciples are in a prayer room for 10 days, you know, and uh, after 40 days of Jesus teaching them, they're, they're in a prayer room. And by the way, at the end of that 40 days, they still didn't get what he was doing. <laughs> and he said, just, just wait. And then when the Holy Spirit came, everything changed within the dynamics of those ones. And so I just want to, I want to pray for you. Aren't you glad he's risen from the dead? He is risen. Woo! He is risen. He's defeated death. He's broken it. He's released the new creation. And now we're waiting, God. We're waiting for power. We're waiting for fire. 
We're waiting for boldness and direction that in the face of impossibilities, God would pour his oil out in a little room with, with 120 people and they're going to change the whole world. Yes. So God, I just pray and I pray that in this room, I pray in your homes and in your car, wherever you're watching this, if you're in a coffee shop, that, that the Holy Spirit just comes. And we just, we just lift your hands and say, we love you, Jesus. Love you, Jesus. you are risen. Christ is risen. He is risen indeed. Pour out your Holy Spirit. Pour out your Holy Spirit upon us. Clothe us in power. Clothe us in boldness. Let the harvest begin. So Father, we thank you for this time in which we're living. We thank you that we're here. We are here because we were born for this day. We pray that you would come upon us and that you would turn the tide of history one more time, that there would be a plot twist that no one saw coming, that you would pour out your spirit on this nation and on the nations of the world and that there would be a revival that continues and turns into reformation in Jesus' name. Can you say amen? amen. Well, I wanna bless you and uh, release you that you have a, a wonderful celebration. Maybe some of you aren't celebrating and it's like, okay, every day is a resurrection day for you. Just bless you for all the family gatherings, that there would be encouragement and hope. God, we pray that you would keep us free from toxic conversations about how bad everything is and that we would have conversations that give you glory and that give hope to those who hear, that our conversation would be full of grace and seasoned with salt. We pray for this, Father. We pray that even today, there would be signs and wonders. Just lift your hands up. I wanna commission you. <laughs> these are these, these anointed hands that you will lay hands upon the sick and they shall recover. God, that there would be prayers answered today, that there would be miracles that are released today through the believing prayers of your people. Pray there would be an anointing to be peacemakers, that there would be an anointing of wisdom in the midst of what looks like chaos and destruction, that we would have a creative word that comes from you, and it'd be a word in due season that refreshes the weary. God, fill us, fill us, fill us with this risen Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. Amen.